This is the Girly Men Podcast. My name is Mike Gurley, and I'm the host and founder of GurlyMen.com, a community of gay men and anyone self-identified as the other designed to help you own your personal dignity, strengthen your connection with your chosen families, and thrive in general society. Today, I talk with Brian D. Mann. He is a somatic experiencing practitioner. I wanted to talk to Brian because he is a treasure trove of information on healing trauma. And trauma is something all humans experience, but gay people and people labeled as the other tend to experience more than our fair share of it. Brian is a self-described wounded healer who describes how we can use our bodies as a conduit for the wisdom of our intuition. Since our intuition is where all the answers to happiness live, I wanted to hear all about reclaiming our true selves. And I was not disappointed. Enjoy the show. The moment you realized you were a gay man, you were forced onto the path of the other. So you know oppression, inside and out. The calling of otherness has led you on your own hero's journey. And that journey has prepared you for greatness. You are a man answering the call to brotherhood, to conscious sex, and to heart-centered connection. Welcome home, brother. Welcome Brian Mahan to the Girly Man podcast. Thank you for being here. Ah, oh, my pleasure, Girly Man. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a somatic experiencing practitioner, right? Tell me about the word somatic and um, what it being a somatic experiencing practitioner, how that's different than other kinds of therapy. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, questioning that because I've always thought it's a terrible name. Um, <laughs> for an amazing technique but it, but it actually is it is the perfect name because soma in latin means body and so the whole idea of somatic experiencing is experiencing the body so somatic experiencing was developed by dr peter levine about 35 40 years ago i think and since then this approach to working with trauma has spread to 125 countries and 25 languages. So it's taught all over the world. And it's considered one of the foremost approaches to working with trauma. Um, and it's also considered a short-term therapy, specifically and especially compared to traditional talk therapy. What we're looking at that differentiates it from traditional talk therapy is we focus more on the biology than the biography. The biography or the narrative, someone's memory is an access point. It's the gateway into the experience of that memory. And the experience of that memory is a recollection of the physiological wounding process. Mm -hmm. So anytime we have a unhealed, unresolved wound, we consider that trauma, right? Mm -hmm. um, another way to look at it is just from a pure biology and physiology perspective is the only thing that separates a stressful event from a traumatic one is based on the, the autonomic nervous system predominantly. So we go through a sympathetic charge, right? So the mm -hmm. sympathetic nervous system comes online. And then if it pierces the bank of toleration, whatever that may be for someone, then the parasympathetic nervous system comes in to manage it, right? So the parasympathetic um, nervous system, we say governs rest and digest. Mm -hmm. And it also is a major player in our early detection warning system and our survival strategies. You're talking about the difference between stress and trauma, and that's a physiological thing, not a, as opposed to the mental component. Exactly. So if the nervous system is able to go through its normal, complete process of activation or arousal, it finds its natural peak, it unwinds, and then that arousal, you know, what goes up must come down. So that arousal then needs to unwind and discharge from the nervous system so that the nervous system can return to homeostasis or resilience. So if that entire process is able to complete, we consider that event stressful. If that process gets interrupted in any way, we consider that event traumatic. So any two mm -hmm. humans in the same location carrying out the same behavior at the same time can have two completely different experiences. And what it's based in is each individual's nervous system. Okay. Now, one of the reasons why we also look at trauma specifically as a physiological condition more than a psychological one is that we can become traumatized, pre-verbal, pre-cognitive, and pre-conceptual. So if we can become traumatized before we can think and reason and put things into perspective, obviously there's another system at play, and that's the lower brain, the freeze, flight, fight, fornicate, and feed 
mechanism of uh-huh. the lower brain, right? And that governs the autonomic nervous system. So somatic experiencing specifically looks at that system and how it becomes dysregulated or truncated or stuck in holding patterns and incomplete defense responses and things like that. We have implicit memory and we have explicit memory. So explicit memory doesn't even come online until about 18 to 24 months. But we have implicit memory in utero, right? So the body remembers in utero, the body remembers the birth process, and the body remembers your experience on planet Earth up until and including when explicit memory starts to come online. Wow. Well, that's that's fascinating. So I, I'm really excited to talk about that. But the first, I want to ask you the question that I usually ask at the top. And since you're a somatic experiencing practitioner, I, you know, the question is, how are you feeling? That, <laughs> uh, because I think question. there's, it's really our lives are better if we know how we're feeling. And I'm not saying right. we have to be in a good mood. I'm just saying if we know where we are. Right. And that's a, that's, a, that's a really big question from my perspective. We, look, you know, we talk about feeling in context of emotion, generally speaking, right? Then there's also the context of what am I feeling and how am I feeling it, right? Yeah. So there's a difference between how my body is feeling and how perhaps I'm emotionally feeling. They're all interrelated, right? Yeah. Because an emotion is nothing more than a collection of sensations varying sensations to various degrees in various locations, right? Then we have a collection of sensations, neurochemicals, and micro-movements and gross behaviors. So that is what an emotion is. It's just sensation, neurochemicals, and behavior. Wow. Right? So if we can take an emotion and get out of the concept of it, I'm angry, and get into the physiology of it, of my jaw is tight, I've got a pit in my stomach, my fists feel like they want to clench, uh, my hips are locked. You know what I mean? I've yes, got this yeah. feeling in my arms like I want to strike, right? Yes. Um, now we're breaking down the emotion into all of its different parts, mm. right? Then it becomes more tolerable to feel because what we've done is gotten rid of the resistance to feeling what we feel because most of the experience of feeling anything is our resistance to feeling it. Because our higher brain thinks, if I feel something, something's wrong. And so therefore I need to change it, I need to get out of it, or Uh. distract myself from it, right? So by adding the inquiry of how and where am I feeling that anger in my body, we've gotten rid of the resistance because now we're leaning in and we've become willing to feel it. And when we can focus on one sensation, so say we have anxiety and it's a collection of, let's say, you know, your anxiety is different than my anxiety. But, you know, if we were to say, let's say my, my anxiety might be uh, elevated heart rate, short, shallow breath, trembling and shaking in my hands, expression of heat, you know, out of my head, right? So I've got all these sensations that when combined together, my brain conceptualizes as anxiety, right? Well, there's also a really interesting phenomenon. Excitement feels identical to excitement. <laughs> so part of it is the interpretation, right? Because we can misinterpret what we're feeling. A lot of people mistake the sensation of hunger for thirst, and so they eat instead of drink, right? Uh-huh. But if we can go back into this idea of anxiety, so now I've got these five sensations, say, and if I can bring my attention and awareness willingly with curiosity into one of those sensations and just hang out with it and explore it and hold the space for it, the nervous system is being listened to because it's communicating through that sensation. And then it will begin to self-regulate. So that sensation will start to reorganize and settle. Then I move my attention to another sensation and do the same thing. Well, now I've got three sensations, not five, so it's no longer anxiety, it's something else. And maybe we call that nervousness. And nervousness is a hell of a lot easier to handle than anxiety is, right? Okay. And we can continue to break that down as well until we get the client into a place of where they feel settled and relaxed and perhaps even alive and vital. Well, and I'm still going to ask you how you feel, but before we get there, though, <laughs> I, I love this whole somatic thing because I took a somatic meditation course uh-huh. and it was a huge breakthrough for me to get out of the cognitive clearing your mind, you know, all of these visualizations and all this stuff in my head to noticing what is going on in my body. And we did this 45 minute body scan the first time. 
And I just walked away from that feeling. It was so informative. And I also thought mm. it was really helpful for men in sense that I think even gay men are culturally programmed to express a very limited array of, of feelings. But what's going on in my body, you know, was a lot more accessible. And um, that's what I hear you saying, that we are listening to the physiological stuff that's going inside of my body. And, and I've just found that as a huge, huge breakthrough. And it turns out that it's connected to Buddhist traditions and, and a lot of other things that have been going on for like 5,000 years. And it's, right. it's interesting to me that this is a fairly recent Finally making tradition. it into the American vernacular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and so, it's important to recognize that most people their bodies are nothing more than a vehicle to move their head through space. Most people's bodies are a shop of horrors. They don't want to feel what's there. Mm -hmm. And the higher brain says there's something wrong when we do. You know, so we've been not only indoctrinated and shamed out of feeling what we're feeling, mm. right? Because big boys don't cry. Yeah. And vulnerability is a sign of weakness. Yes. And sadness is unacceptable and anger gets me punished, you know, so we get all of this messaging around our emotions that it's not okay to feel them. Yeah. Right. And so we disconnect and dissociate from them. We're disconnecting and dissociating from our bodies. Mm -hmm. Right. So then how are you feeling, uh, Brian? <laughs> Fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that will be unacceptable answer. <laughs> No, I'm feeling I'm feeling a lot of things because right before I sat down to open up Zoom and everything, I realized that my dog had peed in my office. So I had to like deal with all that. So I'm a little charged from that. Uh -huh. You know, I can definitely feel that I, I don't really have ownership of my breath right now. I'm, I can feel how I'm managing my breath. And so I'm trying to kind of let go around that and just let my body breathe the way it needs or wants to, but I don't want to be panting uh, because you can't see the lower half of me here. So I just don't want there to be any confusion if I start panting. <laughs> Because um, <laughs> this is, by the way, Zoom is pantsless business meetings, right? Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, I'm trying not to pant. Um, I feel excited. I'm really, really, and you know, I enjoyed our conversation the other day. I'm looking forward to this one, and I just love talking about all of this. You know, that's why I'm a teacher and all of that. I just love the work, and I love sharing the work. So I'm really excited about that as well. I take a moment and just kind of really let myself settle, which I should have done before joining the meeting. See, now I can feel my ass in the chair and my feet on the ground and my arms being supported by the arms of the chair and my back being supported. And so now I feel held and I can really kind of just drop in. And you can hear how even my rhythm is slowing down, the way that I'm talking, my voice is lowered a bit. Um, I felt it. Mouth, I, I feel yeah. more seated in my chair. Right. Our nervous systems resonate with one another. That's just a physiological phenomenon, energetic resonance, right? So mm -hmm. if we walk into a room and say, oh my God, the energy was so thick, I could cut it with a knife. What does that mean? It means that your nervous system was in one place. And when you walked into the room, your nervous system recognized that that collective experience that was going on in that room, all of those nervous systems were in a heightened state of arousal and your nervous system felt the difference. Wow. Well, with that in mind, we have a global collective experience happening right now. I know this is new and I don't know if it's a fair question, but you know, what do you suspect might be the consequence of us having this collective anxiety and fear and, and beyond that being deprived human touch? Oh, wow. So you know, I, gave a, um, I gave a series, I, I, I was a part of a series of webinars um, where me and two of my mentors reached out to healing and helping professionals because we want to help more people get through to the other side of this without being traumatized by it. And so the more healing and helping professionals that we can help, the greater reach we have because then they're taking all that information to their clients as well. So w the way that I look at what's going on right here from a somatic experiencing perspective, from a trauma perspective, there's a difference between how we may cognitively be thinking about what's happening and how our bodies may be reacting and responding 
to what's going on. Because from a lower brain perspective, when lower brain is without thought or perspective or reason, it can't compare and contrast, it has no judgment, it's not rational, it's just animal behavior of survival. So from a lower brain perspective, we're experiencing COVID-19 as an inescapable attack from an invisible assailant. It's coupled in horror because we're witnessing all of this happening to other people right? Unless we've gone through it personally, had COVID-19 ourselves personally. And then all of that we're having to deal with in isolation. And isolation means separation. So there's a loss of boundary, there's a loss of empowerment, there's a loss of, you know, freedom. And in that separation, there's two other things happening. One is intrusion, meaning if you live with people, you're now having to deal with the intrusion, the lack of boundary, the lack of privacy, the lack of solitude that we normally have to regulate our nervous systems. And if you're living alone, you're living in isolation. And what's the worst punishment we can put a human being through, save the death penalty, is yeah. solitary Solitary confinement. confinement, yeah. So I went 33 days in complete isolation because one of my best friends is 85 years old and has OCPD. And I wanted to make sure that if anything went down, I could safely go and hang out with her or take care of her. And so for 33 days, I was in complete isolation. I called her up. I said, hey, I'm safe. My house is safe. We can get together and have our lunches now. And if you need help, I can be here for you. And she said, no way. I don't want anyone near me right and so then i called up my bestie who's also my ex and i was like let's have dinner because <laughs> i knew I, I know that he's totally freaked out about everything because he's a school teacher and oh blah, yeah blah, 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 right and he was living in isolation in a studio apartment you know so seriously that was like you know solitary confinement and so he came over and we were like at first you know elbow bounce bumping and not you know and not really knowing how to you know, touch each other. And yeah. we did this weird thing where we reached around to keep our heads away from each other. And we like grabbed each other's waists from behind. Mm. And then we started laughing. And then we like moved into a full on hug and my knees went out. I w didn't realize the impact of that. <laughs> I'm getting the clip to don't start. I'm a sympathetic <laughs> crier. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah, it is. It is. And everybody's dealing with it differently. Yeah. Everybody's dealing with it differently. Well, thank you for that. Just, I feel seen. <laughs> um, I feel understood from you sharing that story. Ah, oh, sweet. Well, let's, I, I think it's really, really important to talk about trauma. Can you just say, you, you already told us what trauma is. It's like, why, why is it important to uh, dredge all that up again and bring up past memories and all these excuses we hear for like not looking at it? Uh, because it creates habits, habituations, patterns, and vicious cycles. Um, anytime we have habituations, habits, vicious cycles, patterns in our lives, especially when they're confounding. And we've read all the books and we've gone to all the seminars and we've sat with our legs and cross-legged and we've put our hands in funny positions and we've stared at our third eye and we've done, you know, hours and hours and hours of everything about it. Try to I've done that. That's what that means. <laughs> oh, I spent 25 years went going to every voodoo witch doctor kahuna I could find and I tried every pill potion and powder. I read every book except for the one on self-sabotage I never finished. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I did it all. But um, you know, what, what the interesting phenomenon is, is that when we have a wound, that's an unresolved wound, right? And that's really what we're looking at in trauma. So we, we have this early wounding experience. And because at that time in our lives, we did not have the skills, the tools, the knowledge, the resources, the support, whatever that was, in order for that, heal to, that, that wound to fully resolve and heal. So we have this unresolved wound. During that wounding experience, we figure out uh, defense mechanisms and coping mechanisms and survival strategies on how to deal with that wound. We also form beliefs around that wound. So we form beliefs around ourselves, the perpetrator or the experience or the location. Now those beliefs that we set around that wounding experience are there to try to protect us so that if this event were to ever happen again, we'll have a better chance of dealing with it. But the beliefs are also scanning the horizon 24-7 to try to head it off of the pass. You know, if I ever see this kind of thing coming at me again, I'm going to figure out how to avoid it and resist it, right? Mm. But quantum physics mechanics teaches us that we have a tendency to find what we look for. <laughs> and so it draws to us, right? But there's an opportunity there 
that most people aren't aware of. And that is we're in the reenactment now, right? So this similar kind of person, place, experience, location, situation shows up and our higher brains go, uh-oh, here it is again. Let me handle this. Let me deal with it. And all we're focusing on is the current circumstance. The old wound is going, hey, what about me? What about me? What about me? And we're not paying attention to it. So it just goes dormant, waiting for the next trigger, right? Mm -hmm. Or the next stimulus to apply pressure to the trigger of that old landmine. So if we're able to recognize in the reenactment that it's based in an old wound and we're able to, preferably with the support of someone who knows what the hell they're doing, we can go back into that old wound and get enough of that disorganization or that short circuit in the nervous system to discharge so the nervous system can reorganize and return to resilience or homeostasis. If we can get enough of that around the original wound, and we can have enough reparative and corrective experiences in our present day, then the veracity of that belief gets called into question. Uh. And so the belief can fall away, and we can form a new belief based on who we are now with our current life experience and support and resources and intelligence, et cetera. Because here's the thing, most people are walking around acting like children because yeah. they're behaving now based on their early wounding experiences. Well, and I'm hearing uh, that when that is discharged, we're less likely to pull that trauma towards exactly. us. Exactly. There's no need for it anymore. That's a fantastic explanation of, of why, why, why we should look at trauma. So, yeah. um, and so ultimately, and, beliefs have to change. Yeah. And, but we can't change the beliefs through mental gymnastics. We've got to work with it physiologically because the belief was formed around a physiological disorganization and wounding experience. Yeah. Before we get into like any of those techniques or anything... You know, how is that affecting the guys who lived through AIDS? And, and now all of a sudden, I was, just, I was really enjoying the sexual freedom of PrEP and right. all those things. Um, I'm HIV positive. My boyfriend's on PrEP and, and we enjoy um, an open relationship. And it's very fulfilling. And now that's gone. And that does remind me of AIDS. And um, how, do you, how do you see this affecting people that went through uh, trauma? with AIDS? Sure. Well, you know, I am seeing it certainly amongst friends and clients. And, you know, there's a PTSD kind of element in this because a lot of people are kind of experiencing flashbacks. We kind of feel like, you know, it's behind us. We won. So once again, we're under this inescapable attack. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was in New York City, when all of this was coming down, you know, we were flushing toilets with our feet and opening doors with our elbows. And there was no such thing as finger food at a cocktail party. And everybody was just completely freaked out. But, but you know, but that's bringing back all of that. You know, it's kind of like, you know, now I'm looking at surfaces the same way I used to look at, you know, toilet handles, yep. you know, like, you know, and go into a bar and it's like, ooh, you know, I mean, not that we can go into bars right now, but, you know, it's like using your elbows and, you know, there's just this weird kind of thing, like I'm disconnected from my physical environment. I can't engage in my physical environment the way that I used to. So there's that piece. And then there's also just the whole human engagement piece. Mm -hmm. We are hardwired as human beings to belong, to socially engage, uh, because we're the only animal on the planet that spends at least 25% of its life and 100% dependence upon other. Without other, we would die. Wow. Right? Yeah. So, you know, it's bringing up a lot for people. It really is. You know, I mean, it, we, we've had this, you know, this beautiful long period of time where we've experienced freedom again. And, you know, there's that survivor's guilt that we're finally through, you yeah. know, and now we're kind of entering back into this, this kind of inescapable attack where nowhere is safe again. And because, you know, in New York, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know where it was coming from. So, you know, it was mm -hmm. just like gay equals death, you know, and then it went, you know, silence equals death. And then it was body fluids equals death. And, you know, so there was yeah. just all this kind of correlation there. And now we're kind of back in that same thing of, you know, there's this potential of dying. But there's even a greater potential here in a weird way because there's this period of time where we're non-symptomatic, which is the same with HIV, um, but we didn't know that early on. We know that right from the start here. And so now, you know, it's like I have my best to use 85 of those CPD. I don't want to contract COVID. For, I'm not worried about myself. I'm worried about her. I'm in the same situation with my father. I have a visit scheduled uh, for July and I'm just in a lot of anxiety about that, you know, and even mm -hmm. if I'm able to self-isolate here, 
um, I need to get to Missouri. And am I going to just pick something up on that trip, you know, and bring it into his house? And he's vulnerable for all the reasons, age and weight and pre-existing conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that what's happening right now, that's really vital because we've been in seclusion for so long. We've been in seclusion, isolation, and intrusion. And everybody is just gagging to get back to some sort of sense of normalcy. And so, you know, what I'm doing and what I'm recognizing other people are doing, and I understand you guys have kind of coined a a phrase for this, but I was calling it a quarantine, which now has gone viral. I don't know if I picked it up from somewhere or if I originated it, but... um, I probably didn't originate it. And so what I've done is, you know, I have a group of friends. We all know each other really, really well. And coincidentally, everybody has someone in their life that they have to protect. And so those of us who are in the team are extra cautious and careful because there's this one person. Well, now we've got six people. Right, because there's six of us. So actually seven people, because you know, so we've all got seven people in our lives that we're wanting to protect. And so that brings a whole nother layer and level into the responsibility that we're taking. And therefore, the sense of safety that we can feel when we're together. And so we had our first quarantine a couple of weeks ago where we got together and actually had a Friendsgiving. We had a yeah. full turkey and stuffing and the whole thing. And you oh know, and that God. was just amazing just to be able to like cook a meal together and hang out and hug each other and laugh and you know, not worry about you know, all the stuff. Of course, we were washing our hands. And, you know, all that, but we weren't social distancing. Um, and then we took two weeks. So now, you know, we're coming out of that again now, um, just okay. to make sure we wanted to make sure. So, so we're building this, you know, concentric circles of safety, which I think is, you know, uh, an important thing to take a look at. But the other thing we have wow. to take a look at I is just what's wanna, going on. I just take a second and just um, let that sink in for a minute. Cause that just, that sounds wonderful. Um, I'm building been, tribe again and we're tribal yeah. creatures. Right. And our tribes have gotten really kind of loosey goosey and spread all over the place. You know, we don't really have this sense of real strong tribe. Yeah. Right. And so this is a way to build tribe from the ground up. I'm with my boyfriend and that's great. So I get hugs and and sex, but our our lives are completely different. Um, So let's talk about sex. (laughs) I would love to talk about sex. That's one of my, I feel like I I have a lot of experience with sex. Um, were you serious? Do you want to talk about sex? Yeah, yeah, because this is all part of, you know, like, how are we engaging in the world, you know, as, as gay men? You yeah, know, because we're in this tribe, right? We're in this subset of culture, this 10% group, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. and part of our identity, a main part of our identity, where, you know, we have to talk about the elephant in the room. When we're talking about sex and gay men or homosexuality in general in sex, the elephant in the room is shame. Yeah. And one of one of the things and, that drives that need for promiscuity or hooking up, you know, with you know, as much as we can mm-hmm. is it's validating. I'm not the only mm-hmm. vampire in the world. Yes. And so the more people I have sex with, the more validated I feel, which is countering to the shame that I feel that there's something so intrinsically different about me that I'm afraid even my parents will throw me out and I'll be cast out of the tribe. You know, so there's just yeah. this extraordinary shame that we hold and carry and explore. And then there's this defense against the shame, which is all the puffing and the pride and the ego and the yeah you know, all the, the, the bravado and the, mm-hmm. that we try to establish in our own tribe right yes yes so we're trying to overcome that shame and so we get into things like reading each other shaming yeah. each other and that's why i'm really glad you brought up that topic and this discussion it's because i'm trying to simplify it or give us a tool and say you know we need to move if we're moving away from shame, that's what I hear you're talking about there. That's, you know, we, we have this instinct that, that, you know, we have this shame and we're moving away from something as opposed to like uh, just reframing it, putting it in a different lens and like moving towards something. We're moving towards celebrating conscious, connected sex with other people. Right. Even if it's an anonymous encounter, we go into it respecting our brother. Right. And just for a little bit of clarity, I don't really think... And I'm an expert in shame, right? I teach a series of trainings to mental health and helping professionals on how to work with healthy shame and effectively heal toxic shame. So we don't want to we don't want to get rid of shame. Okay, right? Yeah, we need it right? to 
we want to transmute Function. toxic shame into healthy shame because without healthy shame, we'd all be sociopaths and there'd be no rule of law. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and I guess I, I want to replace, uh, I want to change the shame. I want there to be a shame for what I'm calling bad behavior. You know, it's what I call discernment. So another name for healthy shame is discernment because that's the superhero power that we glean from healing toxic shame and, and transmuting it into, into healthy shame. We, we get discernment. We get to understand what's right and wrong, good and bad, correct and incorrect for ourselves, which may be different than society at large, which may be different for each tribe within the society of the human species, right? Right. So, so you're saying shame is a, uh, different for each individual. Like, I, I, I need to do my own work and define what constitutes shame for me. Is that what you're saying? Well, it, it's, it's, yes. I mean, to some degree, it's the ownership of my moral compass, my values, what matters to me, what doesn't matter to me, what feels good, what doesn't feel good, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, you know, what's evil, what, you know, all of that kind of stuff is discernment of okay. how that lands in me and what that means to me. So can you go in again again, like what's the difference between discernment and toxic shame? So toxic shame is I'm bad, I'm wrong, there's something wrong with me, I'm different, I'm other, I'm not like anyone, I'm damaged, I'm broken, I'm unfixable, and therefore I'm unlovable. Healthy shame or discernment is I'm flawed and awesome. So that's my new favorite word, flossom. <laughs> right? I'm yeah. awesome. I make mistakes and it's okay because I learn from them. Because I make a mistake doesn't mean there's something wrong with me or that I'm bad. And yeah. that's what happens that's what happens with toxic shame is children can't tell the difference between who they are and their behavior. And so when we course correct their behavior, they interpret it as there's something wrong with me. So, you know, if I say gross, don't pick your nose, that's nasty. What they're hearing is, you're gross, you're nasty. Yeah. And so that's also the discernment of being able to tease out and separate. There's a difference between my behavior and my character or who I am. Because mm -hmm. I can have great character and I can have great values and I can diverge from them on occasion right. consciously. Yeah. Because I have discernment and I have free will. And I can say, okay, in this circumstance, I'm going to go let my 12 hairs down. And I'm going to do things that I normally wouldn't do. <laughs> um, but so what I hear in there is I need to know what my values are and not not accept somebody else's values, but come up with my own. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And where can we begin that investigation? In our bodies and how we feel, right? Mm. How is my body reacting and responding when I'm thinking about this? Inside my body is so counterintuitive to the majority of Western th stuff. Absolutely. And there's so much information that can be gleaned. Because, you know, we, we say follow your intuition. And a lot of people think that intuition is that little voice in the back of your head. No, that just means you're fucking nuts. No. Intu <laughs> <laughs> intuition is the felt sense. It's a gut feeling. So it's the body talking. And so when I have clients, very, very successful clients, and I'll ask them, you know, was there ever a time when you went against what made logical sense and found you made the right decision? And nine times out of 10, they will say, absolutely, it was a turning point in my life. And it's what led to my success is when I started to listen to my gut feeling. And can you, I think this is really important to me because I, I really do think our intuition is the gateway to our living in our genius is for us to like be happy and free in a sense. Can you describe what feeling my intuition in my body is like, or, or, or is it different for everybody? What's it like for you? Well, clearly it's different for everybody because everybody is a fingerprint. And so, you know, and we all have our capacity and agency to feel what we're feeling. And so, okay, so I have to digress just for a second because I want to put all of this into perspective. Um, and it's based on a 20 year long study that was done at the University of Chicago by Dr. Eugene Genlin. He was trying to figure out why some patients were getting better in a therapeutic practice and others weren't. And so for 20 years, he looked at all the different types of therapy, Jungian, Freudian, Gestalt, Primal Screen, Cognitive Behavioral, et cetera. He was also looking at the therapists, their ability to create rapport, safety, containment, attunement, and to apply their book learning into the practicum. And after 20 years, he determined none of that really mattered. Wow. If anyone is to get better with any practitioner in any practice, 
the single most determining factor as to whether or not they actually get better is based in the client's ability to feel sensations in their bodies, to language those sensations appropriately, then to attach the right affect or emotion, and then the right meaning or belief. Therein lies room for misinterpretation. Yeah. We can feel a sensation and misinterpret it. We can recognize a collection of sensations and call it anxiety when actually it's excitement. And so we may move away from good things and towards danger. Okay, I see that. And we may form beliefs or meaning about that emotion. And there's room for misinterpretation there too. Because we can interpret that anger is dangerous and doesn't serve us, it gets us in trouble. But the reality is, is that if we look at anger on the continuum of the full expression of what it is, because we live in a polarized universe, so there's two opposite ends of that spectrum. On the positive polarity, we have healthy aggression, which is self-care and self-preservation. It's the energy we use to set boundaries and protect them. It's also the energy of drive, dedication, discipline, get up and go, chutzpah, embodiment, empowerment, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the opposite end of the scale, we have homicidal rage and suicidal ideation. So if anger is inhibited, regardless, just because anger is bad, I have a belief anger is bad. If anger yeah. is inhibited, so is our ability for self-care. That's crazy. That's, the, that's an aha moment for me. Just I, I'm feeling these things instinctively um, over the last couple of years with, uh, like I said, starting the somatic meditation, not going through the head, but through the body and, and different things. So this talking about anger being useful and that list of, of self-care things that you mentioned makes total sense. My emotional life was so inhibited. So I grew up in a wealthy family, but my dad was nouveau riche. So my mom and dad were dirt poor. My mom had horrible background and my dad had difficult background, right? Mm, okay. um, but then he put himself to college med school, made you know, got real estate empire, blah, 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 blah. But they wanted to raise us as if we were fifth generation, well-bred, blue-blooded children. But they didn't know how to do that. Mm. So what they wanted to do was form us into the mold of what they thought would be embraced by that echelon of society. So my every thought, word, action, and emotion was course correct. Oh, goodness. So what I came to learn was there wasn't anything about me that was good. There wasn't anything that I could do right. There wasn't anything that I could say well enough. And there wasn't any emotion that was acceptable other than happiness. Joyfulness wasn't accepted because when we were exuberant running around the house screaming our full head off, having a great time, we would get the knock it off. Yeah. <laughs> you know, go outside, yeah. you know. So we learned all that wasn't acceptable either. So for most of my life, I was in a highly dissociative state where I had no ability for social engagement. I didn't talk with my hands, I had a monotone whisper voice, I was dead behind the eyes, you know, I had no facial expression, flat affect. And when I'd go to see a movie and people would laugh, I'd think, okay, remember that. That's what people think is funny. Because I, what I did learn to do was become a chameleon. Because there wasn't anything good to write about me. So when I was with someone and I so desperately wanted to connect, I became them. I mirrored them. Okay. And then when I was in a group, I couldn't do that. So I became invisible. So I was the six foot three wallflower standing in the Yeah. Group. And it sounds like, um, yeah, authenticity was really just dangerous for you. That's what shame does is it reduces our authenticity. It inhibits our authenticity because what shame is doing is it's saying this part of you, not welcome. That behavior, it's not okay. You need to hide this bit. You need to suppress this bit. So shame is about dismembering parts of us. So we're losing our authenticity. So healing shame is about expanding the container of who we are to be able to remember those dismembered parts so that we can become whole again. Because all parts of us belong here, or we wouldn't have them. But we live in a polarized universe, and so there are gonna be parts of us that are in polarized opposition of each other. But that doesn't mean that one's good and one's bad. They both have value and purpose. But the superhero power of discernment comes in and says, ah, so in this group over there, I bring forward these parts of me. Right. And I hold these parts back. Doesn't mean I'm killing them off, denying them, and refusing their existence. It's just that I understand that this group over there values and appreciates these parts of me. And then I find this group over there where I can bring forward the parts that I held back over there. And maybe I even need to hold back some of those parts in yeah. this other group. 
That's amazing. Yeah. Well, you say you you know your full expression. The difference is you know your full expression. And I'm making a choice to show up for this group in the most service for me with the group, as opposed to what's in most service to those people. And I don't matter. Right. That's <laughs> crazy. Well, you've talked about being a, a like in our talk, or maybe I read it on a website about the, you know, the wounded healer. And you were talking a little bit about that. How does that, you know, inform your work, you know, entirely. <laughs> I, <laughs> Entirely. Yeah. Right. Because I specialize in working with developmental trauma. So I just mm -hmm. told you about my developmental trauma. Yeah. Um, the kingpin of developmental trauma is shame. It's ubiquitous. It's, it's, you know, in every culture throughout the world since the beginning of time, because shame is used to socialize children, protect the tribe and establish po power and hierarchy. Right. So shame is a major piece of developmental trauma. So that's what I specialize in. Why? Because I'm on the other side of it now. And I understand, you know, I've lived it and I get it and I understand it. And then on December 21st, 2003, I was in a catastrophic car wreck on the 10 freeway where one of two cars that were racing like fast and furious, the first car blew by me, the second car clipped me and my car went end over end, then rolled three times sideways across three lanes of traffic, slid oh on the driver's door 150 feet and crashed into a concrete wall. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Sounds awesome. Because <laughs> what happened is, several days later, I started having panic attacks. But mm. I didn't know there were panic attacks. I thought I was either going crazy or had become possessed. Because for several, several days on end, I was laying in the middle of the living room floor with the phones off, the curtains drawn, the doors locked, because I didn't want anybody to know what was happening. I was in the fetal position, howling at the moon. My body was trembling and shaking and flailing around like a flounder on a hot rock. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? And this is after 25 years of sitting at the foot of every guru and praying and meditating and medicating and all the stuff that I had done. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, and, and everything that I thought I had healed had come back in spades. Wow. All of my old negative cyclical thinking, all of my self-loathing, all of the everything that I thought I had been healing through all these pursuits over the years had come back fully realized. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? I've already tried everything. I'm a goner. Or maybe, and then I got so crazy, I thought maybe I'm possessed. And so I went and I asked kind of like my first point in health at that time. I went to Dr. Connie and I said, Dr. Connie, I need a referral. And she said, what's going on? And I said, I need an exorcist. And she was like, honey, what's happening? <laughs> so, so I told her and she was like, oh, no, I think you need a trauma specialist. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, what's that? And she sent me to a somatic experiencing practitioner. Three sessions, my panic attack stopped. I haven't wow. had one in nearly 17 years now. And within two weeks of that third session, I started the somatic experiencing training because I was like, I don't know what voodoo this is, but I got to learn it, you know? Yeah. And so, so that's, you know, what got that, me here, you know? And actual experience. I, I got to tell you, I really trust that um, a lot more than I trust Then book people. learning. Yeah. What's this whole thing with the, the UBU? So, you know, it's just something that I came up with in working with shame because there's so much inhibition and suppression of so much of who we are through the shame experience. And so there's a lot of internal conflict as a result. And one of the things I say to my clients, you know, if and when appropriate and all that kind of thing, I'll just look at them and I'll lean forward and I'll just like slow things down and, I, and I'll just deep into their eyes and I'll go, you be you, boo. <laughs> you get to be you. You get to be all of you, all of you. And I embrace all of you. All of you is welcome here. All of your emotion. Even if your anger feels like it's too much for you to handle, it's not too much for me. <laughs> I'm here with you. All of you. I feel that so deep in my chest. It's just like, a, it, it uh, makes me like want to cry with joy in a sense that because that people are afraid of being authentic, you know, would you Absolutely. say that's a yeah, common? Because we get it from everywhere. We don't just get it in the developmental stage of our lives. We get it constantly all day long. We're being compared to or compare ourselves to. There's no wonder that suicide rates have gone up since social media came into the field. Mm. Because what are we seeing? We're seeing the best moments of people's lives magnified, you know, on a daily stream. 
and we're looking and feeling about our own lives as if I don't stack up. Yeah. I don't match this. That's not where I am. It's not how I'm feeling today. Do you have any advice on healthy, uh, safe places for people to express being authentic? Um, especially with what people call the negative feelings, you know, mm-hmm. sadness or grief or fear or anger. Right. What's, a, well, what's, the, what's a good way to be authentic with that? Well, the interesting thing is, is that because of the inhibition, oftentimes there's a lack of connection to it within ourselves as it is, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll have clients that say, I don't feel anger. And so I have to work with them and engaging and bringing online the experiential sentient experience of anger. So first and foremost, we want to bring it online and embrace it and explore it with curiosity and acceptance before we even get to a place of beginning to negotiate expressing it. Yeah, I I believe it. It, It's such a problem in my judgment that, yeah, we can't even... And then a lot I, of I've met those people. I, I met a guy that said he has no resentments. I'm like, mm. how is that possible? You're a 34 right. year old man. Well, what that means is that he's never had a boundary crossed. Really? <laughs> 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 because when a boundary is disrespected or crossed, it creates resentment. Period. Yeah. End of statement. Yeah. So what the reality is, is that he doesn't have access. Perhaps I don't want to speak for him. I don't know him. <clears throat> But, you know, my hypothesis would be is that he doesn't have the agency and capacity to feel it and to take ownership of it. Yeah. And now because resentment mean, is part of anger. And so I'd really be more curious about what his relationship to anger is. Uh huh. And that just makes me sad. I mean, having uh, done this work where I'm fully feeling these things um, is great. You were mentioning boundaries. This is an area that I'm still kind of just clueless. I'll read a book or a blog post or whatever on boundaries, and then I instantly forget what it is. And I and I think I I don't have clear enough boundaries in my own life. So. Well, you're in luck because I teach workshops on boundaries. That's awesome. <laughs> so we have to understand there's physical boundaries and energetic boundaries. Mm-hmm. So in order to understand energetic boundaries, because they're kind of ooey and gooey and unclear and conceptual, let's look at physical boundaries, right? So that's finite and real, and they exist and they're the same for all human beings, right? There's no variance there. So a boundary is a line in the sand. A boundary is my house. Uh, The outside walls of my house is a boundary. It separates Mm -hmm. the inside of my house from the outside of my house. The property line is a boundary. It separates my property from the city's property and my next door neighbor's property. Yeah. United States, we have boundaries, two oceans on one side and countries on the others, right? Uh-huh. So that's what boundary is, right? Physical boundary is a demarcation. It's a line in the sand. So as a human being, my primary physical boundary is my skin. It's the place where I end and the world begins. It's also the place where the world ends and I begin. Ah, that's a great way of looking at it too, yeah. So my skin holds and contains all that I am, and it separates me from all that I am not. So my skin says, this is me, mine, and of me. And it also says, that is not me, that is not mine, and that is not of me. Yeah. So now I can choose to energetically engage with things outside of me, right? Energetic boundary, okay. or I can choose not to. But yeah. I have this physical reality of this membrane balloon-like structure called skin that separates me from all that I'm not. So client, you know, so I'll have people say to me all the time, oh my God, so all you do is work with trauma? That must take a toll on you, you know? And I'm like, no, I feel better at the end of the day the more clients I have because I have a strong sense of boundary. Hmm. I understand that whatever the client brings into the space is not me, it's not mine, it's not of me. I can empathize, I can sympathize, I can join, I can, you know, but I'm not going to merge in a mesh. Because if I do that, they're not going to feel safe. So it's really important oh. for me to have this boundary. So that's part of why I feel so good. I also, I work in dual awareness. So I'm in a constant dual awareness of being grounded, centered, boundaried, embodied, empowered, in the moment, safe, and joyful. So those are what I call the eight states of embodiment, which I also teach a workshop on. So, <laughs> um, so it's part of my vernacular, right? Yeah. So at the end of the day, when I've seen nine, 10 clients, I've spent nine or 10 hours Grounded, centered, boundaried, embodied, empowered in the moment, safe and joyful. 
I feel better. So we have a secondary physical boundary, which is the length of our arm. Okay. So we're able to claim the space. So what does this say as I stretch my arms out with my hands flat parallel to you? What does this say to you? Well, that says stay away. Yeah. Yeah. Back off. Yeah. This is my space. Yeah. This is my space. So now I can claim and take up all of this space. This is my space. So I have a buffer between my primary physical boundary and the rest of the world because I can push it out and away. Now, I also have a tertiary physical boundary, and that's the length of my leg because it's longer than my arm. And our legs are our first line of defense. We use them to flee and to fight. They're our longest bones, our biggest muscles, our strongest muscles, except for our jaws. And that's our last line of defense is our jaw, right? But our legs can keep the assailant farthest away from our internal organs. If they get past that, we've got our arms. And if they get past that, we've got our jaws to okay. bite and to bite back. So, those, so that's our tertiary boundary, or you know, our three physical boundaries. Then we've got the physical boundary of the room that we're in or the car that we're in, et cetera. So we're just concentric circles of physical boundaries. And then we have energetic boundaries, which are things like silence. When I'm meditating and the ever-present leaf blower shows up, my energetic boundary of silence has been ruptured. Yeah. So energetic boundaries can also be things like politics, racism, um, religion. You know, we have all these kind of energetic boundaries in our lives of what's right and wrong, good and bad, correct and incorrect, and, and all of that as well. Yeah. So those energetic boundaries can get really kind of wishy-washy. Now, to sum all of this up, people have a tendency to either be unboundaried, to have fuzzy boundaries, to have healthy boundaries or to be overboundary. And so obviously what is best is healthy boundaries. Yeah. And so I help clients move from being overboundary, right? Where they may be shut down. Let's say they're shut down sexually. So that mm. frigidity is a rigid energetic boundary. I don't yeah. go there. And then a lack of boundaries is when there's codependence, enmeshment. Yeah. Can't tell the difference between, you know, me and my partner or what my partner is thinking and feeling, I'm thinking and feeling. So there's all of that exploration in there as well. I'm just enjoying this so much. So you're right, you've written a book and it's coming out. What's in your, the book? So the book is called I Cried All the Way to Happy Hour, A Trauma Survivor's Guide to Profound and Long-Lasting Healing. And mm-hmm. so it's a bit of a healing memoir. It's, you know, I kind of use myself as you know, an example, you know, my, my story. I'm not sure if I'm going to have case studies in it because I really want it to be for the layperson. Okay, okay. But it's basically helping what I hope to be more people understand that trauma in and of itself intrinsically is predominantly a physiological condition, not a psychological disorder. So if we can switch the focus and look at trauma as a physiological condition, then we can work with it physiologically. Then we can heal it. If we're looking at it as a psychological, from a psychological perspective, We may gain time, distance, or space. We may compartmentalize it. We may be able to reframe it. So we're changing our relationship to it to some degree. So it's a management and mitigation rather than an actual healing and transformation. Well, that sounds amazing. I've recently told somebody who does coaching work that, um, yeah, I've done so much of that talk therapy and stuff, and and I highly recommend it. Um, absolutely for the right things just not for the right things and (laughs) but i said now i know why i'm i i have this persistent condition but i don't want to have this persistent condition (laughs) right right and no amount of mental gymnastics i'm telling you right now no amount of mental gymnastics is really going to be able to resolve a physiological disorganization dysregulation or short circuit you know if there's a holding pattern right yeah Um, we're just not gonna be able to think our way out of it yeah, that sounds great. I can't, I can't wait to read it and then talk to you <laughs> more about that stuff if you'll, if you'll come back. So uh, uh, there's some qu- questions that I asked to all my guests. I, I want to ask them to you. Uh, the first one is, what advice would you have for your 16-year-old self? I would tell my 16-year-old self that it wasn't my fault and that it wasn't necessarily that there was something wrong with me. And more than likely, the reason I was suffering is because there was something wrong with them because they were the, and I don't mean just my parents, I'm talking about Mm -hmm. outside influence, right? Because of their point of view, perspective, reflection and mirroring Mm -hmm. of me, 
doesn't mean that there was something wrong with me and that I was bad or wrong. It may have been yeah. that their perspective or their lack of agency or capacity or their inability to attune to me and meet my needs and desires was a deficiency on their behalf, not yeah. that there was something wrong with me. I think that's a really, really important message. And I consider myself blessed by the universe. And I have to say, through a sexual experience, when I was 16, I hooked up with an older guy who was like 22. And, oh <laughs> and uh, we began to, began to talk. Uh, I was raised uh, very religious and Mormon. And he finally said that to me. He said, you don't have a problem. The problem is other people accepting you. Uh, yeah. Wow. Mark wow, McCormick, so thank you for that. That's you know? so crazy how that yeah. just mirrored for you, what you're mirroring for me. How do you invest in your own dignity? What's your self-care that keeps you grounded? You talked about the eight states. Uh, maybe anything else? Do you have any kind of rituals? For me, it's more a matter of transparent, authentic honesty, forthright, transparent honesty. That's how I care for me. That that says that almost describes a person in dignity. How did your chosen family come together and how do you stay close to them? Um, God, how did we come together? You know, all I can say is that like attracts like and birds of a feather flock together. And I have an extraordinarily eclectic group of friends. I don't really have a gay clique. I'd like to have a gay clique, but I don't really have a gay clique. But what I have is an extraordinarily diverse group of friends. Like if you come to one of my soirees and you're invited mm -hmm. to the next one, um, <laughs> You know, what people walk away with was, oh, my God, I've never met so many different kinds of people in one place at one time who were all actively engaged in getting to know each other. That sounds delightful. There's nobody standing in the corner feeling like they don't fit in or they can't make a connection or whatever, because none of us would stand for that. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, so my last question as a man, as a gay man, what are your special gifts? And do you think some of them are related to you being gay or not related? What are my special gifts? Authenticity. My agency to join someone where they're at. That's huge today. And that's what I, you know, that's what I have to do, right? All day long. I have to join my client where they're at because they're already coming in thinking they're here and I'm here because... Mm. Yeah. There's already shame in the relationship. There's something wrong with them and there's something better about me. And so I have to join them. I have to meet them right where they are. And I have to be authentic and I have to be self-revelatory and work with self-disclosure so they feel joined. Do you think that level of, it's more than just empathy, but meeting people where they're at, do you think your gayness your, had anything to do with that? Or is it just your life mission? Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think I'd have to say a lot of my healing around my gayness has to do with that because my gayness in its original form did not give me the agents and capacity to do that because I was different and I was other and I was suppressed and I was hiding and I was, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. and so that didn't give me the ability to do that. Now, as I've healed through all of that and I've embraced all of me, that then lends itself to that level of engagement. Oh my God, I, I could talk with you for another hour and a half. Um, Let's do it again. I would love to, and I can't wait to see you in person. Yeah, me too. I, I want to thank you for coming today. I just want to read this quote from one of your reviews. It's not the oh. whole quote. Um, and then I want you to uh, let us know how we can get in touch with you. And Are you going to make is, me cry here? <laughs> um, we'll see. This comes from Rebecca, and she says that working with Brian has been utterly life-changing. In a few months, I experienced a profound transformation from being anxious and depressed to feeling free, unburdened from the heavy weight of my thoughts and, most importantly, excited about my life. Discovering somatic experiencing has been a blessing, as I had already tried traditional talk therapy with little lasting results. The inspiration that I'm filled with on a daily basis from every single session to see the difference between where they walk in and when they walk out. And then to see that accumulate over time 
to these massive shifts and transformations is the only reason why I do what I do. It's amazing. So how can, how can we get in touch with you? Um, well, my website is com. So that's Brian with an I. D is in Douglas. And Mayhem, not Mayhem, Mayhem, <laughs> M-A-H-A-N. So okay. Mary, Allen, Henry, Allen, Nancy. So I got Mary and Nancy in there. So that's BrianDMahan.com. And then my email, if people want to email me, although I don't like email, is BDMSEP. So that's just my initials, BDM, and then SEP, Somatic Experiencing Practitioner, at gmail.com. Brian Mahan, thank you for being on the Girly Men podcast. Thank you for your time and for uh, helping people uh, live their fullest possible lives. Such a pleasure. And thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the show, my friend. Now stay connected by subscribing to Girly Men Podcast and sharing with your friends on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts can be found. Visit the webpage at girlymen.com, sign up for the newsletter, and find more details about each episode. Let's make this a conversation, because I'd really like to hear from you. Join us on Facebook, at girlymen. Submit your questions, suggest topics, or just chat with your brothers. Want to add your own two cents? Use the voice memo feature on your smartphone. Ask a question or say anything. We just might play it on the podcast. Email the file to mike at girlymen.com. Until next time.